Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to The Lundown, a podcast analyzing breaking news in architecture, housing, and planning produced by Open City which is a charity dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible, and equitable. From now on, by signing up as an Open City friend from £5 a month, you can get early ad-free access to the Lundown and free tickets to live recordings throughout the year. Plus, you get all the other benefits of being an Open City friend too, including access to an exclusive program of year-round in-person events. Also, by donating, you're supporting independent journalism, keeping the Lundown free and accessible for others, and directly helping Open City's wider educational work, particularly with children and young people from underrepresented communities. To sign up as an Open City friend and get early ad-free access to the Lundown, click the link in the show notes or visit opencity.org.uk slash friends. Thank you. On with the show. Coalition policies added to social housing failures, says Michael Gove. Landlords impose draconian new vetting procedures on prospective tenants. UK insulation scheme is set to take 300 years to meet targets. And an Alvar Alto-inspired, architecturally acclaimed London College is facing demolition. My name is Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to The Lundown. My guest this week here at Bureau in Design District is Claire Benny. Claire is founder and director of the consultancy Municipal. Uh, I have to say, we've been trying to get Claire on the show for over a year, possibly. Merlin reckons we set up this show specifically to get Claire on the show. So it's fantastic to have you here in the studio with us. Thank you and welcome. Thanks, Finn. Our first story is that Housing Secretary Michael Gove has admitted to past mistakes by the coalition government over social housing that have contributed, he says, to significant neglect faced by tenants today. Speaking on BBC Radio 4's Today programme, Gove was pressed to comment on the horrific case of Sheila Selenane, a medical secretary who lay dead in her housing association flat for 2.5 years, despite neighbours' repeated efforts to get Peabody, her housing association, to intervene. Gove admitted that decisions made by the coalition government to abolish both the National Tenant Voice, a body giving tenants a say on social housing issues, and the social housing regulator were a mistake. He said, quote, there were some mistakes and errors made, not just by the coalition government, but by governments before, which contributed to social tenants not getting the support that they deserved and not having their voices heard, end quote. 
Sadly, Selenane's case is by no means the only tragedy to afflict social housing tenants in the last few years. Gove said the Grenfell Tower fire and the death of the two-year-old Awab Ishak caused by fatal exposure to mould highlighted a, quote, problem that we've had in the past with social housing landlords treating their tenants with a degree of distance and in some cases neglect, which is unacceptable. So, Claire, it is rather unusual to hear ministers admitting that their own side has made mistakes in recent history. Gove seems to have acknowledged some government errors which have led to the dire and dangerous conditions faced by many social housing tenants today. Claire, is he right to pin the blame on the coalition government? Is that a fair assessment? I think it is, actually, in this case. Um, I think there's there's probably four ways in which everything sort of gradually hasn't gone very well in the last 13 years. Um, Labour put in place in year 2000 an inspection regime which lasted till 2010 when it was sort of summarily got rid of. Um, that inspection regime was quite full on, actually. I was part of an inspection regime when I was working at Peabody in 2005. It was really rigorous. It really made everyone up their game. It really made a difference to the way um, Peabody did things. So, I think it's hugely valuable. So getting rid of those um, inspections and everything that was sort of involved with that was important. I mean, the other thing that's been watered down, of course, is building regs. So, you know, when you think of Grenfell, the sort of privatisation of inspection of that, it's all about inspection and care in the end and who's looking at what you're doing. Um, That led to Grenfell directly, in my view. But I think, you know, also HAs can forget their knitting sometimes. Um, In the end, they're landlords that have to look after residents and properties. And sometimes there's a way in which they get caught up in development programmes, dare I say it, or they get caught up in mergers and acquisitions. And there's been a lot of that recently. I don't think big organisations are necessarily bad ones, and perhaps we can come back to that. But I think sometimes there's a way in which um, that can distract them from uh, some of the basic things they have to do. Finally, on this, I think there's an estate management point. So I've got an enormous amount of time for people who look after estates day to day on the ground, stomping their patch and knowing their residents. And I think there's a way in which estate management's been digitised, call-centred, etc. And they've taken the human out of estate management. I'm not saying they, Peabody, but they, HAs. And that can cause just that lack of human contact, um, which I think Gove was talking about. So I think there's a bit of government kind of uh, agency in this. And I think there's also a little bit of housing association sector agency also in how residents are treated. I mean, is it entirely fair for Gove to pin so much of the blame here on housing associations because he's saying they're treating vulnerable tenants as you know numbers on a spreadsheet or he's insinuating that but they surely would would say that well you know funding has been cut there isn't the the money coming from government that 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 there used to be Um, as someone with you know a lot of experience in housing associations who's right here is it is a bit of both I think that needs to be found out. And in fact, it will be. There's some cross-party research that's literally just about to begin, um, led by Clive Betts, who's Labour. You know, do they have enough money to do what they're expected to do? There is so much to do. They they have to develop new homes. That is part of their remit. They should retrofit everything. They should, you know, do all their repairs. They've got to sort the cladding stuff out that's yeah. happened. You know, can is this really possible? Question mark. Um, uh, don't know. But that 
that's what that uh, piece of research is designed to do. Um, I, I really don't know is the answer. Let, let's imagine that Gove, you know, walks through the door uh, now. He's on the show as a, a special guest. What do you what do you want from him? What would you tell him um, if, if if he was here now? It was interesting to see that a recent survey found that actually seventy one percent of conservative voters, his own kind of base. Uh, are now saying that they're, they're in favour of the construction of more social housing, which is, you know, is a sort of narrative you don't often hear in the media. Um, so it feels like there, there might be some political capital that he could he could use at this point. Yes, that's that's an interesting figure. I think if I was going to be very cynical, I might say as long as it's not near them kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, housing's a funny one in political terms because I still think that, you know, there's only about 12% of people in the country who are private renters. We'll come back to that. So there's a there's a bunch of secure people who own and a bunch of relatively secure people who rent from the state. Mm. And then there's a group of really beleaguered, really kind of troubled and unstable and people with really difficult circumstances who are in the middle. And we'll talk about them in a minute, I think. Yeah. And so therefore, as an electoral issue, housing, even though it kind of people know it's a problem, they sort of feel like they're all right in some funny way. And so it's a really hard one to get more money for. I mean, you know, if, if he were in the room, it's too obvious to ask for money. But actually, funding social housing needs grant funding. It needs cross-subsidy of some kind, cross-subsidy or subsidy. So the obvious point is you need more grant funding to do the retrofit, to do more social housing. But I think the inspection regime he's just about to put back in place is actually amazing. Mm. Um, I think it's going to kind of restore some of the trust uh, and the standards that that are needed. Um, But I think it's not all about asking politicians for things. I think Mm -hmm. the sector, when I was at Peabody and I started there, we had an amazing kind of customer service training, which was changed the culture there completely in about 2005 and that was led by the chief exec and I so I think there's a combination of you know getting the government to focus on the right things and also um, a culture change within the sector as well. It's very hard to separate conditions in in housing from the wider housing market and what, what's going on there and it does seem like the UK housing market is continuing to slow. Uh, City AM reported that London houses, in particular, were taking a very long time to sell, uh, which they say is a factor fueled by you know really 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 high house prices. Um, a strategic reduction in house prices could maybe be a good thing, but this doesn't feel particularly planned at all. Could this fall in prices have an impact on the provision of new homes, in particular uh, the delivery of new social homes for rent? Yes, absolutely. The model we're in right now is cross-subsidy. So basically, most affordable housing is funded through the profits from private housing. So when that doesn't happen, that cross-subsidy is not there. Back in the 70s, social housing was funded by a 100% grant. So that 100% of the cost of a home was paid for um, by central government. It's only about 20% now. So you need a more regular and consistent form of government grant for social housing if you want more of that to exist. I calculated um, that London social housing is around the 800,000 mark at the moment. Um, If you want to double that, which is probably about what's required because you've got right to buy and all that kind of thing, 
There's about a £200 billion funding gap. Now, the mayor, and this is London only, the mayor at the moment has around £1.5 billion a year to dish out. So that's 133 years of um, getting doubling our social housing stock. So that's kind of not sustainable. And what I keep thinking to myself is, and this is, this is a fantasy rather than reality, but I'm going to give it to you anyway. Well, hang on a minute. There is a lot of wealth, a lot of wealth in London, and quite a lot of it's tied up in real estate. So there's, there must be a way in which we can somehow extract the wealth, which was, you know, unearned, but, you know, lucky for some people that own it, mm. um, and bring that into, you know, pay it forward into the future. So I'll just give you a, a sort of slightly mad scenario. Um, you know, the property wealth in London, most people pass it on to their kids. Fine. There's not a lot we can do about that. And it'd be electoral suicide for anyone to suggest anything else. But there's a lot of people who don't have kids. OK, they might want to pass things on to nieces and nephews. But let's just pretend they don't for a moment. And actually, I'm included in that cohort. And um, I've calculated that about 50,000 people die in London um, every year and that 6,000 of them probably own a property. So that's three billion quid's worth of property every year that don't have a, a home to go to. Um, so wouldn't it be amazing if a whole bunch of people could decide to pay it forward into some kind of mayoral fund that said, would you like to retrofit a home or make a home affordable? Um, here you go. Here's the kind of vehicle that you can put it into and we'll match fund it or something like that. I mean, this is not going to happen. OK, but I just kind of I just keep thinking of these scenarios mm. because I'm like the, the wealth is there. Mm -hmm. It's just locked. And the moment it unlocks is when people die. What an int I think you should set up this organisation. <laughs> I think there would be demand for that. People are always thinking about how they can leave some sort of legacy. And if you are someone who doesn't have next of kin or, or, or children, then this could be a really useful way of doing it, rather than leaving it to the Battersea Dogs and Cats home. <laughs> Our next story is that letting agents and landlords are adopting extreme vetting procedures amid the worst rental market conditions to date, sparking fears over tenant discrimination. So The Guardian reported that renters are being asked to provide personal statements, access to LinkedIn profiles, and even photographs of themselves in order to be in with a chance to rent a property in the capital at record prices. Campaigners are warning that landlords are increasing the potential for discrimination with details such as high salary or having attended a prestigious university seen as characteristics of a desirable tenant. Another reported tactic includes mass viewings, encouraging prospective tenants to outbid each other on the spot above the marketing price uh, to secure a flat. Uh, other renters are being asked to pay several months' rent up front while letting agents are failing to provide sufficient information about energy costs. So Dan Wilson-Craw, who's acting director of the campaign group Generation Rent, said, quote, Landlords might pick the tenant who appears most conventionally attractive. He added, if you don't have regular work or if you don't have a long-term contract at work, it puts you at a disadvantage compared with other renters. It just adds another opportunity for discrimination. I have to say... Um, as someone who has you know experienced the London rental crisis and this kind of constant hustle of trying to find somewhere to live um uh, even when the market wasn't as bad as it uh, is now th this all feels extremely scary to me um we know that britain can be a hugely prejudiced country especially in this this sector and it's hard to believe that you know a pretty white girl is not going to have an advantage above say an older black man if photographs are being suddenly suddenly being used as part of the tenant selection process 
So this all feels really worrying to me. Um, what do you think is going on here with these new tactics? It's just appalling, to be honest. I mean, it's Rackman. It's the no blacks, no Irish, no dogs all the way back to the 60s or whenever that was, isn't it? So um, there is a renters reform bill coming, but it's really, really slow. And again, it all feels in the too difficult box for the politicians, I think. So, I mean, how is this too difficult to say you're not allowed to rent a property based on the looks of your tenant? That shouldn't be politically impossible. No, agreed. Sorry, I don't mean that that's too difficult to sort out. I just mean that generally the rights and the wants and the needs of people in that 12% 12% nationally, 25%, 26% maybe in London are private renters. Mm, mm. Um, just, you know, sadly comes too low down because it's people are still like, oh, it's a stepping stone. Never mind. They'll get mm, to the sale home mm, at some mm. point, you know. Oh, dear. So what is the future kind of looking like? Because it feels like this is just getting worse and worse. Um, average uh, rents are up by 15% on last year, according to figures from Zoopla. I know people who faced higher rent rises, 40%, 50% even. Um, and this is all happening amidst a kind of wider inflation and cost of living crisis. Um, it doesn't feel sustainable. In fact, it feels like the brink of a, a, a catastrophe. Um, what do you think will happen if this trend continues and it isn't addressed? Well, that's a really good point. And I'm just going to confess right now that I I have no idea. What I can imagine, and it, actually it has been happening for a good 10 years, is that more people will live in the same home. So I think uh, we went down to 2.1 people per home in London in tw- 2001, I think. I think by 2011, it was 2.5, something like that. So we are seeing more overcrowding, and I can imagine that happening. Um, I can mm. imagine a lot more uh, parents doing a lot more equity release. Um, but you're, what you're probably asking me is not what do I think is going to happen, but what ought to be done. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure I know the answer to either. You could talk about capping rents or capping rent rises. That is really difficult. I've seen very strong arguments on on both sides about what that does. And I think what that does is sometimes remove properties from the rental market and therefore make the problem even worse. And people don't invest in them. And the people who are building build to rent at the moment literally will just sort of down tools. Now, you may disagree or not believe me, but I, I having talked to a lot of build to rent developers, I think that is a risk. So um, I think you have to find the sweet spot between crushing renters and crushing the the industry of people who are renting homes to people. Um, And that's actually really difficult. I want to ask, how did we get here? Because you go to comparable economies in Europe and it's nowhere near as bad. What I mean, it's sort of maybe similar in like Dublin. There there is no comparable economy. Okay, so like London is its own. It's a global city. So money and people and jobs are kind of fully, fully concentrated in London. We don't have a distributed economy like some other countries do. You know, London is the place that you go to kind of, you know, make it at a certain point and then perhaps you move out of it at some point when you've done that. But um, it is a it's a global place and it and therefore land is worth a huge amount of money compared to other places. It's less regulated um, and and also the London government itself cannot raise money to solve its own problems, um, which is huge. If you go to Vienna, they make taxes and they, they sort their own problems out, whereas London can't do it. You know, that's why it's really difficult for Sadiq Khan. If you're the opposite party to the one in government, they're just going to constantly use you as a football 
and you won't get what you need to solve the problems. And then people love kicking London as well, you know, isn't it terrible, you know, all these rich people, blah, blah. But actually, you could also say it generates a lot of the GDP. And so, you know, don't don't knock it and kick it, but then that GDP isn't distributed properly, et cetera, et cetera. But, but the point is that London can't solve its own problems. So the, the money's there, but it's just not being redistributed to actually help lower income Londoners to serve the London that, you know, they live in. Um, what, what about evictions? Could that be a sort of useful thing to focus on? Because, you know, you mentioned Vienna and um, in, in sort of German speaking European countries. It's quite hard to evict somebody unless, unless you know, you want to move in yourself. Uh, you've got to have really good reasons to evict someone who's renting from you as a landlord. And um, the big issue uh, picked up on a, a YouGov poll recently, which seemed to indicate that um, people who complain about something to do with their flat, you know, the fridge is broken, the, the, the door doesn't lock properly, are much more likely to get evicted than people who don't complain, which sort of makes sense, because sort of common sense, the landlords kick out uh, troublesome, whingy tenants. And it does feel like um, that's true for, from the perspective of, of renters, but evictions are also a problem for communities, because... Uh, you know, a whole no load of my neighbours recently got kicked out by their landlords, rents going up, they're selling the property. And that's obviously bad for those individuals who, who've had to find somewhere else to live. But it's also bad for our neighbourhood because our friends and, and people with, that we're sort of building bonds with locally are constantly getting moved on. You know, how are we ever going to live in a country where people know and trust their neighbours if their neighbours constantly get kicked out every year or so? So could we sort of end evictions or, or make it much, much harder for landlords to uh, evict their tenants? Yes, I think we can and we must. I mean, if you're in the social housing sector, it's blooming hard to evict people. Um, very, very hard, in fact. So we already have a regulated sector. OK, in London, it's only 21% of housing, but it exists. I, again, I just come back to private renters are really, really badly served. Um, and the renters reform bill can't come too soon. It's as simple as that, really. Our next story is that the UK's home insulation scheme may take up to 300 years to meet the government's own targets to reduce fuel poverty in England alone, according to industry calculations published in The Guardian this week. The government's Great British Insulation Scheme, which aims to insulate 300,000 homes a year for three years, would take 190 years to upgrade the efficiency of the UK's 19 million homes in need of insulation. Fixing Britain's poorly insulated housing stock is considered crucial to achieving the UK's goal of net zero carbon by 2050. However, data shows that energy efficiency installations such as loft and cavity wall insulation peaked in 2012 at 2.3 million. The past decade has seen efficiency programmes slashed and by 2021, annual installations were 96% lower at fewer than 100,000. Matt Copeland from fuel poverty charity National Energy Action said the new scheme, which was announced as part of the energy security strategy last week, was, quote, not well targeted at fuel poor households who need the most support with their bills. Our own analysis from the most recent set of fuel poverty statistics for England found that it will now take approximately 300 years for the government to hit its statutory target for all fuel poor homes to reach EPC C far behind the 2030 deadline.
Um, Claire, what is all this about? There has never been a better case for insulating homes. Um, Energy independence from despotic fossil fuel exporting countries, protection from these wild summer heat waves that we're getting, cheaper bills in the winter. It seems like a really obvious thing to do. How has the government got their energy policy so wrong? Who is benefiting from the slowdown in insulation upgrades, if anyone? Uh, absolutely nobody. Um, I mean, just thinking about the Tories are planning four billion over ten years, roughly three point eight billion, I think it is. And I think they said there's another twelve sitting around in previous announcements. So at best, it's sixteen billion over ten years. Labour sixty billion uh, quid over ten years, and two million uh, homes sorted in the first year. Um, two thirds of homes need some help. Um, it's interesting to think about how much that costs. You get a real variety of. It costs twelve thousand pounds to sort a home out, or it costs fifty thousand, which is what a recent uh, London Council's report said. Mm. I think sometimes it costs a lot more than that. It's incredibly fiddly. If you take a Georgian home or a sixties home with loads of concrete twists and turns. It can cost a lot to get to even EPCC, and actually EPCC is quite bad. So I've mentally, for for the purposes of when I think about this, put a hundred thousand pound a home aside in my head. And guess what? That's two hundred billion in London. So we really do need that fund from those people with the property wealth. Um, but yes, around uh, four hundred thousand public homes need it sorted uh, in London, and that has to be the priority. Obviously, it's going to cost a lot to upgrade all these homes. And I agree with you that um, some of the estimates we see are are lowball figures. But spending money on highly skilled work, improving the energy efficiency of our homes, not only saves money in the reasonably short term because of these super high bills, but could be a really good economic driver. You know, Britain is stumbling along economically it does feel like we need a kind of epic nationwide project to kind of reboot our economy around and what could be better than adapting our built environment to be fit for um, an increasingly severe climate emergency I think that's right. I think Labour's calculated 450,000 new jobs could be created this way. And that has to have a cost benefit knock on, doesn't it? If you give someone a job, they can spend more money, etc, etc. The real difficulty with energy is that it's the resident that benefits, not that that's a bad Mm. thing, just that they're the one making the saving. And so therefore, how do you actually fund the works when it's somebody so the money doesn't kind of flow quite correctly? I think there's energy sprung, isn't there? Is that the Dutch method, which says your bill's going to stay the same sorry but um, we're going to take the the rest of it that you now don't owe and use it to fund the works our final story is that an acclaimed 1970s college building in west london designed by the architect bob giles is likely to be demolished after historic england recommended the government give it a certificate of immunity from listing So the Architects Journal reported that the building's owner, West London College, has been planning for several years to bulldoze this 1970s-built Hammersmith and Fulham College building and replace it with a development that includes private flats. The college was completed in 1980 to designs by Bob Giles for the Greater London Council and is clearly inspired by the Finnish architect Alvar Aalto. But Historic England have said that while the building was monumental in scale and its use of materials, later alterations had lowered the overall design quality of the scheme. It added that the 23,000 square metre brick structure could not be protected from development because it did not, quote, demonstrate the requisite innovation and quality. 
um, a spokesperson for Docomomo, who are an organisation dedicated to the documentation and conservation of modern buildings, said, quote, uh, this group of buildings is the most ambitious achievement of the London County Council and Greater London Council Architects Department. It was completed towards the end of their existence and perhaps is comparable to the Festival Hall, which is Grade 1 listed. Claire, what do you make of this building? Do, does it merit saving or, or should we have some private flats instead? <laughs> Oh, when you put it like that, Finn. Um, I haven't seen the buildings. I haven't got a clue. I suppose all I'd say was it was interesting looking at what the principal or whatever she's called said. She just said, I can't use this building anymore. Now, so there's two scenarios. She's either, she and her team are either being really quite lazy and they really haven't thought about how they could reuse and how they could cross-subsidise the work that's needed to the building with some flats somewhere on the gaps. Or they might have done quite a lot of work on it, I don't know, and realised that this building, even though it's only 43 years old, is actually just doesn't work anymore. I mean, there are buildings that quite frankly, they're leaky, they're terrible in energy terms, they're, the spaces are really difficult to convert for other things, and buildings go out of date. Now, Finn, you and I have got a history of standing in pubs shouting at each other <laughs> about demolition, so I know exactly how you feel about it. I'm probably in the middle of that spectrum. I've seen some buildings which, you know, some architects and some other specialists say this is amazing, and either residents or other people have just said, it's it's shot, it's gone, it's damp, nothing's fixed it over 40 years. And I think that the duty on all architects now, when they're doing new buildings, is to really, really think, what could happen to this building in 50 years' time? Is this building convertible into three other uses? You know, The other thing I think is really important is to have a fully agreed way of assessing whole life carbon. There just isn't. There's loads of completely nonsense reports which go to planners where it's sort of like, oh, would this report have ever, ever said that a building should be retained? Probably not, because mm -hmm. it's probably skewed in some way towards, you know, a demolition argument. So I think if somebody can make a simple way of saying, right, here's our argument, here's the building now, here's what would happen if we refurbed it, et cetera, et cetera, and say, on balance of all of these factors, um, we believe that then that would be an incredibly helpful thing for our industry. Because at the minute, we're just arguing over great big kind of justifications that, that don't seem to, you know, tell the whole story. They tell the story that they want to tell. I also just think that the um, our kind of pathological aversion to maintenance needs to be sorted out before um, we should go around building, spending lots of energy building new buildings. Because if we're going to build another building and then in 50 years time we'll be back here in the studio talking about how it's got to be demolished again because the principle is saying oh it's unusable it's damp it's not been properly maintained then that just feels like um, we're going around in circles well agreed but i think some architects and others make buildings very hard to maintain or not just hard to maintain but they detail them so that they're failing and they you know they make huge areas of sort of terraces or flat roofs or whatever it is that are just going to go wrong, especially when you haven't got much money to do the maintenance. It kind of behoves the person designing it to make it pretty much bulletproof. I mean, that's, you know, you look at the early Peabody estates, they are simple brick boxes with a few nice details. At the time, everyone said these look like prisons, it's disgusting, and of course they're all conservation areas now. But, <laughs> um, 
the simplicity is what means that the service charge is eight quid a week. Yeah. And if it's a new build, it's 38 quid a week. And it's like, what have we done? Claire, we could con- clearly continue this conversation. <laughs> uh, maybe we should another time. But uh, I think we're going to have to move on to the culture section. The, the London Society, friends of the show, have started doing this kind of series of like thought leader style debates where they ask a big question. I think the last one was, should London be a city state? And this one is, should London be bigger? Uh, and they've sort of made this kind of potentially slightly imaginary proposal that we claim sort of chunks of the surrounding counties and bundle them into a sort of super greater London metropolitan area. Are you going to go to that? Does that sound like an interesting debate or, I have, or not? I have indeed booked to go hey, to that. So I'm why looking are you forward going? to what, it. What are you, what are you intrigued oh, by? Oh, I don't know. Just to see some human beings. Right. You know, I'm quite lonely and bored some of the time. So, um, <laughs> um, But also, you know, I love London. I sort of lived here since I was nine on and off. And um, I, I think the proposition sounds odd. You know, what, what does it mean? I mean... What do we mean by London? Is it the governance? You know, is it the bit the mayor controls? You know, and if so, why does he need to control something that's further out? And in any case, his powers are rubbish. So, you know, what use is that? Um, is it because we want to build taller buildings out in those near those stations? The Russell Curtis kind of thesis. Um, people who aren't in London really don't want to be in it. I mean, there's a whole bit. Of, I don't know if you've noticed that the map of Greater London and you look at the southwest chunk and there's a great big nibble out of it. And I think it's basically because everyone said no way. Um, and it was a massive political issue. <laughs> and so and, you know, I think people have a right to say we're not in that bit um but but these you know the points i'm making are amazingly unsophisticated and that's partly why i'm going to it because i want to hear why on earth people would or wouldn't (laughs) make that proposition russell curtis is one of the speakers yes i'm sure he'll be there banging the drum for more towers in surrey or whatever he's interested (laughs) good luck with that it's on the 24th of april it's at 22 bishop's gate which is that colossal building by plp in the center of town so uh might be fun to go just for the venue uh, if not for the discussion as well. Claire, it's been an immense privilege, honour to have you on the show. Where can our listeners sort of follow your uh, musings? Are you on social media? I am. I'm Claire Benny on Twitter, which really annoys the other three or four Claire Bennies that there are out there. <laughs> um, I also say a lot more on LinkedIn these days, oh. not because I like LinkedIn. In fact, I can't stand it. Um, but... Uh, it's where people that, you know, clients and people that care about what I'm saying exist. So I do say things uh, on LinkedIn. You can also um, have a look at the Architect Directory, which I've made, which is architectdirectory.co.uk, um, which is uh, a directory, funnily enough, of 857 at the moment, uh, architects who design housing in London, which you can filter by all sorts of interesting things okay. like female directors. Um, and then we are municipal.co.uk is the other place where you can have a look at my various musings. Fab, that directory sounds really good. Yeah, I do, I'm, I am, I'm troubled by the rise of LinkedIn. It, I, I really hoped that would go nowhere as a product and it seems to be becoming increasingly dominant. Thanks for coming on this show. <laughs> See you on LinkedIn. You've been listening to The Lundown, a podcast from Open City in association with the London Society. If you've enjoyed the show and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Lundown and a ton of other benefits while supporting independent journalism, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Lundown is produced by Poppy Waring, Merlin Fulcher, Rachel Capel, Ella Jessel and 
me, Phineas Harper. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.